This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. What is the value of a drug and who decides? Is a drug's value determined by the years it might add to human lives or the degree to which it improves the quality of those lives? And is the value decision best made by a government expert or by a doctor and his patient? This desire to understand and measure the value of drugs is at the core of implementing so-called quality-adjusted life year standards, or QALIs, used by healthcare systems around the world. Quality advocates assert that an objective standard of value is essential to containing cost. Through a quality lens, experts will approve only cost-effective drugs. But while quality standards may promise to apply an objective or scientific lens to determine value, they also disguise the subjective or ulterior preferences of those who design their algorithm. To wit, determining whether a drug is cost-effective requires one to first assign a value to those lives that drug helps to extend. How can an expert account for the manifold benefits of a drug to a single life, let alone an entire population? Indeed, what are the consequences of those quality expert determinations on patients, their doctors, and the drug formulary they can access? My guest today is Dr. Bill Smith, visiting fellow in life sciences at Pioneer Institute. Bill has recently released a research piece entitled The Quali and Cancer Treatment, an Ill-Advised Match, in which he examines the effects of a quali framework on healthcare and warns of the dangers to patients where it is embraced. Dr. Smith has 25 years of experience in government and in corporate roles, including senior staff positions on Capitol Hill, the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, and the Massachusetts Governor's Office. He spent 10 years at Pfizer and later served as a consultant to major pharmaceutical, biotechnology, and medical device companies. When I return, I'll be joined by Pioneer Institute's visiting fellow, Dr. Bill Smith. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by visiting fellow in life sciences at Pioneer Institute, Dr. Bill Smith. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Bill. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you. I was uh, really intrigued by a very recent uh, paper you released uh, entitled The Quality and Cancer Treatments, an Ill-Advised Match. Now, many of our listeners are unfamiliar with the term quality or um, quality-adjusted life years, uh, a measurement in, uh, in um, uh, pharmaceuticals and in medicine. So let's start at the beginning and help our listeners understand what does quality or quality-adjusted life years mean to healthcare? Yeah, Joe, it's, it's a somewhat wonkish topic, but it's not an unimportant topic because many European countries use this quality methodology, quality-adjusted life year methodology to decide which medicine should be made available uh, in, their, in their countries. And it's, it's a very problematic methodology in my mind. So what, what qualities are... It's a way of measuring the value of drugs by their ability, one, to extend life, so longevity. How much longer does it make you live? And two, how does it improve your quality of life? So each of those measures, quality of life and longevity, are equal weight, equally weighted in the quality methodology. And they look at a drug 
how effective is a drug in extending life or improving the quality of life? Now, listeners out there may think, oh, that sounds reasonable. Why wouldn't you, you know, why wouldn't you rate drugs by their ability to extend a person's life and improve their quality of life? The problem is when you, you get into the details, it creates all sorts of issues. So, for example, you're an older person, you're 60 years old, and they invent a new drug that's going to make you live to 80. It's going to give you 20 more years of life. Great. <clears throat> you're thrilled. But suppose you're a 30-year-old and they invent a drug that's going to give you 50 more years of life. That drug is going to be highly, highly rated under the quality methodology because it extends life by 50 years. But if you're the 60-year-old, you say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Why should that 30-year-old's drug be rated more highly than the one that gets me to 80? And, and that's, that's a problem in the quality methodology by, by focusing exclusively on longevity. It, it kind of is an ageist, has an ageist quality to it. it the same problem exists in the quality of life, uh, weight of the quality. So, for example, you're a, a disabled person, say you're non-ambulatory, you're in a wheelchair, and they invent a new drug that's going to give you 20 more years of life. Not improve your quality of life, just 20 more years of life. Patient B is not in a wheelchair, and that patient gets a drug that's going to give them 20 more years of life, and they don't have quality of life issues. Well, guess what? The drug for the non-disabled person is going to be rated higher because it, the, the person has a perfect quality of life. And the disabled person would say, well, wait a minute. That, that's not fair. <laughs> I'm, I, need to, I want to live 20 more years myself. So the, the, the kind of abstract nature of the quality creates these problems for specific communities. And that last paper I wrote, I pointed out some of the, the problems that the quality creates in the cancer, sure, but sure. for the cancer patients. But, you know, there's also a very arbitrary nature to the quality. So what, the, what they do with these qualities is they say, okay, what is it worth to extend a person's life for a year and improve their quality of life so that they have a perfect quality of life? What is that worth? And they actually put a number on it. In the U.S., they declare, declared that one year of life lived in perfect health is worth about $150,000. Mm -hmm. Now, and then they rate drugs, the, the value of drugs based on that. The problem is, what's, where does, where does $150,000 come from? You know, if you say a year of life lived in perfect health, for one of my children, I'd say that's worth millions, <laughs> right? So you put the threshold higher and most drugs are then going to be rated cost effective. If you put, if you say a year of life lived in perfect health is only worth a dollar, then no drug is going to be cost effective. So there's sort of an arbitrary nature to that threshold that they use and they can move it up and down. <laughs> and just by moving the threshold down, more drugs are going to be uh, declared not cost effective. And so, that's how they manage budgets in, in so, these European countries. So, Bill, that's a very provocative uh, opening round of uh, explanation. I appreciate it. So I, there's a lot to unpack there. So let, let, let's back up a little bit and say, OK, we're looking at uh, some, some attempt to make an objective measure of what is fundamentally a, a qualitative or a, a subjective or almost normative assessment of wh what matters. Who should we uh, be, quote unquote, saving? But let, let's start at the beginning and say, okay, um, by your standard, uh, if a, a, a year of, of good life is worth $150,000, so a brand new 
newborn infant uh, who is expected to live to 100. Uh, that's a $15 million a cure. And someone who's 99 years old may be uh, uh, less than that, right? Something, uh, you know, a few hundred thousand, right? Older people have less life years to give. That's right. So, so what we're saying is just by its very nature that we're using uh, life years, uh, uh, drugs that address challenges or extend life for older people are essentially going to take a backseat to those that extend life for younger people. There, there's a dis, there was under the quality, there's a disincentive to discover new drugs um, for older, older people. Now, that's not an issue now because more than 40% of the market for pharmaceuticals is in the US. And there's no disincentive to create drugs for, for older people. But if the US were to adopt the quality along with the large markets in Europe and Japan and other places that use it, you're going to cr- see some of these disincentives kick in. Sure. Let's take a step back. In your paper, you did actually provide a lot of background on where these concepts came from. Uh, I was interested to learn uh, primarily in the UK, where we have they have their national health service. Effectively, the the government is is paying for everybody's medicine. Uh, that medicine, particularly for cancer treatment, that was what you addressed in your paper, was getting quite expensive. And so they were looking to manage those costs. And they said, well, what what can we do to manage the costs of these cancer treatments? Say more about the history and how that evolved and how effectively it was a, a political uh, um, aspiration to move uh, the responsibility for, I guess, constraining the supply of drugs from the politician to the technocrats. Say more about that. Yeah. So it, it, it's an interesting story. Uh, basically, you know, the National Health Service is a national, completely nationalized health service in Great Britain. Everybody gets free care. Um, but there's, there's, it's regionally managed um, in England. So some regions had uh, more generous formularies, other regions had more restrictive formularies, and the people running it thought, you know, we got to figure out some objective way to rate all the things we're paying for here. And initially, they didn't want to just do drugs. They wanted to do everything. They wanted to do, you know, how effective are are knee knee replacements and uh, brain surgery, and they wanted to do everything, but ultimately it devolved into just valuing drugs. And they, they put this quality system in place, and a report came out in about 20, 2009, might, might, be, might have been 20, 2010, I can't re- remember exactly, but a report came out that showed that the, the Great Britain had the worst cancer care in the developed world, uh, that nobody was getting the newest and latest cancer drugs, and it became clear that this was because of the quality. The quality rate, the quality threshold was very low in Great Britain, used by the National Health Service, so they weren't paying for any new cancer drugs. This caused a gigantic political explosion in Parliament. You had women with breast cancer marching on Parliament, people with all different types of cancers writing to their members of par- Parliament and, and House of Commons. And ultimately, the Conservatives just said, you know what, we're going to take the quality out of ratings for cancer drugs. We're going to establish what's, what they call the Cancer Drugs Fund, and we're going to pay for all the newest and latest treatment. And they actually passed a law saying you cannot use the quality any longer to rate cancer drugs um, because the, the quality of care had deteriorated so greatly. Um, so they continue to use the quality for, for rating other drugs, but they, they're not allowed to do it with cancer drugs. Um, and cancer availability of cancer medicine improved dramatically in, in Great Britain after this law was passed in about 2011. So at some level, it's been discredited as uh, for those drugs who, that, that really matter. Uh, and perhaps it's still applied 
in, uh, in other areas. Your, your paper goes into why, um, what are the flaws of, let's say, you know, well-intentioned bureaucrats trying to uh, ration uh, uh, precious resources, precious uh, medical uh, dollars. Um, what are some of the problems with merely assessing value? You pointed to one, which is to say, it's somewhat arbitrary to how much we value a year of life if it's a uh, million dollars, uh, the threshold is, is higher. Um, uh, if it's a dollar, it's lower. What are some of the other challenges with understanding, let's say in, in the case of cancer, how much, how valuable a drug is to its patient and, and that, that patient's family and community? Well, another infirmity of the, uh, the quality in, in rating medicines is that they don't, um, they don't survey patients about their views. So for example, if you want to give a drug a quality of life score, uh, they they say, how much is, would it be worth if you improved your breathing 25% and you ask a cystic fibrosis patient that, that question? If you ask a cystic fibrosis patient that question, they'd say, that's maybe extremely valuable if I could improve my breathing by 25%. The problem is when they do these quality surveys, they survey the general public, not the actual patients who have the condition. And that's how they establish these quality of life scores for different drugs. And, and they do that intentionally because they know a member of the general public is not going to rate the quality of life improvements as greatly as a patient who actually suffering from the condition. So they, they build all sorts of biases into this model um, that, that make it hard to take really seriously because it's clear that their goal is to restrict access to new medicines, particularly new medicines that might be expensive. Um, and that's not necessarily what the goal should be. Sure. Um, maybe this is too early to introduce this concept uh, into our discussion, but uh, I don't know if you would recognize sort of quality logic or quality um, um, principles in our struggle to, dis to determine who would get um, COVID-19 vaccines here in the U.S. Um, you know, it, one doesn't need to be a, a healthcare economist or a scientist to see there was a direct correlation between uh, morbidity and age, meaning the older you were, the higher the risk of dying from COVID. Uh, so we could have theoretically said, look, uh, the sickest or the most likely to be sick are the oldest and work our way backwards. Instead, we applied different uh, priorities. Um, and, and in many cases, even here in Massachusetts, some of our um, older um uh, citizens took a back seat to younger, uh, less vulnerable populations, um, presumably uh, discounting the danger to to older populations. Can you say uh, something about the vaccine? Yeah, no, the Massachusetts public health officials got into some hot water because they implied in some of the documents they were putting out that they were going to uh, distribute medicines based on life years, maximizing life years. Now, of course, as we, we've been discussing, for elderly people, they have fewer life years to give. So they are going to end up in the back seat if you use that, that judgment. And, and again, it wasn't, it, it wasn't a rational judgment. You know, I mean, it, it is the case that elderly people are much more vulnerable than, than young kids, for example, when it comes to COVID, even though kids have more, many more life years ahead of them. Um, so applying this abstract formula of qualities in, in COVID would have been a disaster, would have been a disaster. 
Now, um, you had uh, framed it at the beginning of the show that this uh, quality uh, construct really is primarily used in in the UK or in Europe, um, it's, you know, and had a pernicious effect on on health there. How would uh, our listeners, who I don't know how many international listeners we have, I'm going to assume the lion's share of our listeners are domestic or Massachusetts listeners. Um, how will this sort of uh, beyond the vaccine? How would uh, this kind of framework make its way into our healthcare system? Um, you know, we, we don't have governments deciding what we get. We have, in theory, some semblance of a free market. How would this sort of logic affect those of us, uh, either ourselves who have, have cancer or some terrible disease that need, need, these, uh, need these drugs? So uh, I think the most logical way that it would in, in insert itself into the U.S. healthcare system would be through the federal government adopting it in their ratings for medic drugs in Medicare, Medicaid, the VA, places like that. And they would hire somebody like the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, which is a Boston-based nonprofit that currently rates drugs using the quality. They put out papers, and, and no, nobody's required to use the, uh, the ICER papers on, on value. But the, the federal government could mandate that ICER is now the referee for drugs in Medicare. And again, the reason that would be problematic in my mind is ICER's been around for about a decade. They've evaluated the, the value of more than 100 drugs, they've said 90% of those drugs were not cost-effective at the manufacturer price. So you could see on the horizon, Medicare patients having their drugs restricted. That, that would be the, the real-life outcome of uh, the federal government adopting it. Um, I don't think that the, the commercial markets would ever fully adopt ICER as a mandatory um, uh, cost-effectiveness tool because they're in a marketplace, right? They're competing with each other. And if United Healthcare or Harvard Pilgrim degrades their formularies to, uh, to such a low quality, they're going to lose their, their customers. The employers that hire them are going to say, you know what, you have a terrible <laughs> formula, drug formulary. Um, and so I, I think they would take, I, commercial plans would take ICER's conclusions into account, but they wouldn't use it in a mandatory way. But the federal government could require that ICER is the official referee and, the, and would be the official designer of any Medicare formularies. Um, and that would be very problematic in my mind. So um, in effect, this ICER, which isn't really applied to anyone, is just out there, this free-floating uh, entity that evaluates uh, different drugs and has deemed, as you described, most, 90 percent, uh, are, are not valuable. Um, but but uh, insurance companies and drug companies can... Uh, uh, provide and buy what the market requires. What you're saying is a, a safe um, backstop against uh, ICER standards being implemented is if there's a disconnect between what they see as valuable and what the, their customers, what the insurance company's customers see as valuable, when there's a disconnect, then ultimately uh, there'll be a backlash, meaning uh, the uh, insurance provider will essentially either lose clients or, or choose to ignore ICER, right? This is, this yeah, is yes. our... Mm -hmm. I agree completely with that. I mean, you know, commercial health insurance companies have two very healthy incentives. They have incentives on keeping their premiums low, so not spending too much money, not being too expensive, uh, getting uh, getting a value for the buck. But they also have an incentive for keeping quality high, right? You know, my wife works at Harvard University. I'm sure when they buy their health plan for their employees, they look at the quality of that plan and they say, oh, they have a good, generous formulary. You can see a specialist. They look at things like that. So th those are very healthy incentives. Um, uh, 
keeping costs low and keeping quality high. Um, in government plans, not so much. You know, the incentive to keep quality high is not always there. Um, but they are very concerned about cost, and that's why these European nations have embraced the quality. It's a way of them saying, when we cut costs, we're doing it in a smart, objective way, when it's really not. It's just a, it's a fig leaf. I, I don't want to sound too callous, but essentially when, when in, in a govern, government situation where, let's say, Medicare is you know, the, the dominant provider of health care, uh, you're no longer a taxpayer. You're now a uh, a cost uh, for Medicare. So when they're evaluating whether a drug should be provided to you, they're looking only at the cost, not how much benefit it it uh, provides you. You're you're a, essentially a liability to Medicare, not a a customer any longer. Yes, exactly. And and the way the government views it sometimes, and the way politicians view it sometimes, is if we can just cut some costs in Medicare. Uh, pay less for different services, we can actually expand coverage. We can bring more people into the program. Um, and that's not a good way to look at it. I mean, you want to serve you want to serve the patients that are in that program with a quality benefit. That, that's, that should be a priority, and it, it, it not always is. And it seems to me you could in that situation, if your goal is merely to cut costs, you decide what cost you want, and then you adjust the quality to, to solve for that cost, meaning you say, this is the money I have, uh, I'm going to uh, devalue drugs until I reach the level at which I can sustain myself. Precisely, precisely. And, and I've, you know, I have experienced some international experience with how uh, other countries purchase drugs. And, you know, it, it, in, in Canada, for example, I, I had a friend who ran the, the drug program in one of the provinces, I forget which one, Ontario maybe. And, and she said, if a new drug came out and it wasn't in my budget, I would just go to the pharma company. I would say, do another study. Uh, do a study on how this drug works for people between 40 and 60. And then next year, I'll be able to fit the drug into my budget. So mm-hmm. they, pl- they play all sorts of games like that when, when you have a, a, a government that pay- pays for every, every piece of the healthcare system. Um, and what inevitably happens is that new drugs aren't made available as quickly. Um, that's just just the facts. That's the way it is in European countries. Some some countries are close to the U.S. Germany, which does not use the quality. Uh, you, you can't. There's new drugs are more available almost as much as in the U.S. But then other countries are, are you know, fifty percent, sixty percent of new drugs are made available in places like France. Um, so a lot of new drugs are not being made available to patients. I want to point to another uh, aspect of your your paper, which I thought was. Very uh, insightful and ties into some of our earlier uh, Hubwonk episodes. You you introduced us to Hannah Mamushka. Her field is precision medicine, which is to say, one now with science we can understand, uh, looking at our DNA or, or the makeup of an individual, what their likelihood of getting a particular a cancer or some terrible disease. Um, and in your paper, you talk about the fact that when you're coming up with these quality standards, you're looking at a general population. That's a very different perspective than if your your DNA suggests you're more apt to have breast cancer or or lung cancer or something of this nature. In that case, your quality would be much higher. Or you know, you're, for for you in that subset, uh, your quality is a, a extraordinary. Whereas if you're not vulnerable for these things, it's it's virtually zero. Can you say more about how, let's say, the dawn of precision medicine might affect the sort of or or, or uh, diminish uh, still further the, the value of quality? Yeah, so if, if, if ICER here in the United States is rating a drug for lung cancer, they're, they're saying the value of this drug based on what we've seen in the clinical trials is 
it's not going to be cost effective if, if it costs more than $50,000. They might put out a conclusion like that. The problem with that is that not just with specific cancers, but subsets of patients who get certain types of lung cancer, certain types of prostate cancer, some more aggressive than others. And now we're beginning to figure out the genetic profile of what people would get, what type of cancer they might be vulnerable to. And therefore, the, the particular medicine that you're rating might be extremely valuable to that person with a certain genetic profile and not as valuable to others. So you can't reach these broad conclusions like ICER does, in, particularly in cancer, where, where we're discovering there are so many new types um, and certain drugs work well on certain patients with lung cancer and don't work as well with others because of their genetic makeup. Um, so I'm not sure how you evaluate a drug like that. I mean, how, how do you do a big study and say it's cost effective at this price and not at that price? You'd have to you'd have to do a study of every subset of patients and see how effective it was given your genetic profile. Um, so I'm just I'm skeptical about you know real smart people with slide rules being able to figure all this stuff out when it's a very complicated problem. Uh, the type of patient the how much the caregiving the patient will need, uh, what the side effects are, what it, there, there are just so many factors that are better determined in the marketplace with physicians, families, patients, and not with some guy in a slide rule with a slide rule in Boston. Sure. No, indeed. I think we've covered the fact that uh, the, the challenge is it, it, it definitely discriminates against age, uh, against uh, any disabilities. Uh, any sort of unique genetic profile, meaning if it's if it's effective, one hundred percent effective with five percent of the population, and completely ineffective with the other ninety-five percent, it will have a low quality score. Um, so I think this is a, a this is a, um, uh, one thing we haven't talked about too is the quality is very problematic for rare disease drugs mm-hmm. because rare disease drugs, you know, you you might invent a drug that where there's only two thousand patients in the whole country. And if you do the R&D on a drug like that, that drug is going to be very expensive. You only have potentially 2,000 customers, right? And say you spent 300 million or 400 million on the R&D. So that drug is going to be extremely expensive. And the quality thresholds don't take that into account. Mm -hmm. Um, And we are seeing many, many new drugs for rare diseases. Uh, uh, More than half the drugs last year that were approved by the FDA were for so-called orphan drugs, which are for smaller patient populations. So in the area where the most innovation is happening, the quality would would diminish that enormously. So our our listeners, I think, are are perhaps conflicted when they hear two things. One is, I think what you're suggesting is a market or individuals are better at assessing value than, as you say, some guys with slide rules in Boston, right? Um, We all know relative value. That's fundamentals of markets. But also our listeners are, are, let's say, fiscally responsible. And they say, look, there's not an infinite supply of money. We can't just say yes to everyone. Uh, All economic systems ration uh, in some form or another. Of course, they have to. Um, So is this just a a blank check to drug companies to uh, uh, produce and charge and uh, provide whatever drugs at any cost uh, we may want? Is there a a market constraint? Are are there ways to uh, limit the cost without quality? Yeah, well, there are ways. Uh, I'm skeptical that a bunch of elites in in some (laughs) university can figure out what drugs should be made available and which ones should not. And the ideal situation in my mind for controlling drug costs is what happens in commercial health plans. They have 
a team of people, usually medical doctors, medical directors that look at new drugs, they read the clinical trial information, and they decide, well, how much should we pay for this? How much would our, the patients in our plan really benefit from this medicine? Um, and then they would go to the drug company and say, you know what, We've, we saw the side effect profile on this drug, it's not as good as we expected, and therefore we'd like you to give us a 35% discount off your list price. And then they have a negotiation. And the marketplace decides who's going to pay what price. Um, you know, it's it, and drug companies for many of their drugs have competition. They, they, there's price competition. You know, they come out. I remember when I was at Pfizer, it, Zocor was Merck's uh, cholesterol lowering drug, and Lipitor was Pfizer's cholesterol lowering drug, and the price competition was absolutely fierce. That's why you see so many ads on TV, because chances are the drug that's being uh, advertised is competing against another drug that's out there already, or is it's a new drug entering a very crowded marketplace and they need to get name recognition. So there are market price constraints. I mean, the average discount now for a, for a drug uh, off the list price is about 48%. So commercial insurers are getting big, big discounts, and they're making decisions based on what they think the quality and effectiveness of the drug are. Um, so that's the healthiest way to make these decisions. So it's markets do prevail. I think, I don't know if we have time, uh, you, you shared with me a story earlier, sort of in the, in the green room of, at Pfizer, uh, a place where they really blew it, where they thought they knew what uh, the value would be to the marketplace. Uh, that, that's the little blue pill called Viagra. They thought, my gosh, everybody will rush out and pay almost anything for this wonderful uh, 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 drug. Uh, can you say a little bit about that story? Sure, sure. You know, Viagra was such an innovation. And uh, you know, to, treatments for erectile dysfunction involved a needle. So they weren't very popular prior to the blue pill. So when the blue pill was invented, Pfizer thought this thing's going to really take off. Everybody's going to want it. Their health plans are going to cover it. And we're going to make billions on this. And they misjudged. Um, and a lot of health plans said, no, we're not going to pay for erections. We're just not going to do it. Maybe for someone with a spinal cord injury, um, we will do something like that. We'll give four pills a month or something like that. But it didn't get a lot of uptake on commercial health plan formularies. So they changed strategies. And Pfizer said, this is going to be a cash drug. So we're going to have to advertise the hell out of it. And anybody who's watched an NFL football game 10 years ago would know how many Viagra commercials there were. And the reason there were so many is they were trying to get people to take cash out of their pocket and pay cash. And it worked to some degree. I mean, Viagra became a multi-billion dollar blockbuster drug, but in largely a cash market. So um, uh, market forces work um, much better than uh, than some people give them credit yeah, they, for. Yeah, they think, so, you know, critics of drug companies think it's, oh, it's a license to print money. Whatever they put out there is going to have to be paid for. And that's just not true. In the case of Viagra, people said we're not paying for it. Right. Both both individuals and and uh, and uh, insurance companies. Right. Um, I want to tie in. We're getting close to the end of our show. I want to tie into um, the show something I have not heard a lot of coverage of, but um, we're coming out of this pandemic. God bless. We're all vaccinated and life has returned to normal. And we're all starting to go back to our doctors and um, getting our checkups and um, uh, all the diseases in the world did not take a year and a half vacation. They uh, um progressed. And some of us will discover we have cancer. And in fact, it's, uh, we've discovered it much later than we would have otherwise without, um, but for the uh, uh, pandemic. 
Uh, so there's gonna be a lot of people with a lot of bad diseases needing a lot of good drugs uh, suddenly. Um, what do you think uh, this sort of uh, the wisdom of our conversation, how does that speak to uh, the need, which I, I assume is, is imminent for uh, a lot of drugs for a lot of good people? Yeah, that's a great question, Joe. And I think my next paper, on which I'm just starting to research, is going to be on cardiovascular treatments and, and uh, how they, the number of diagnostic tests for cardiovascular disease, blood pressure, hyper, hyperlipidemia, atrial fibrillation, the number of diagnostic tests was down dramatically. In the case of blood pressure, hypertension, for example, 50% fewer people got their blood pressure tested during COVID. Um, so you're going to see a lot of heart disease. And, and I, in my view, one way to deal with this, uh, this coming public health crisis, and it will be in cancer and cardiovascular disease, people, people aren't, haven't been going to their doctors, is to eliminate restrictions on their access to new medicines. So don't require prior authorization or all sorts of steps to make patients go through the hoops before they can get what their doctor has prescribed. Make those treatments readily and easily available until we can get through this public health crisis, which is going to happen. There's just no doubt about it. You can't have 36% uh, fewer people um, getting tested for their cholesterol and not have a growth in heart disease. It's just, it's just going to happen. So uh, we're coming to the end of our show. Our, our listeners are not uh, the type that sit back and let things happen. They're, they're engaged, uh, they're informed, uh, and they like to do things when they, they, they're uh, inspired. Uh, they want to um, take action. What can someone listening to the show who is concerned about these sort of uh, artificial or arbitrary or uh, you know, misapplied standards uh, in their own lives, what can an individual either with a rare disease or God, God forbid cancer, uh, what can they do to ensure that these artificial um, uh, constraints on the supply of their drug uh, is not uh, foisted on them? Yeah, well, we live in a democracy and anybody can talk to their public officials. But in my view, one of the best things that a patient could do with a specific condition is go to the patient advocacy organization that represents that group of patients. So if you have cystic fibrosis, go to the Cystic Fibrosis Association and become active in the local chapter and educate people at the, the, the at the patient advocacy group about why you're concerned about the use use of the quali, um, and then ask them to get involved. Uh, and and I know I was a drug lobbyist myself, and and I know that uh, the the one organization that that legislators treat most seriously as a as a unbiased and an important source of healthcare information are these patient advocates. You know, they'll take anything a drug lobbyist says with a grain of salt. They'll take uh, a lobbyist for a health insurance co company with a grain of salt, but they will listen carefully to patient advocacy organizations who many, many times selflessly represent their patients for not very much money. Um, so my advice would be for patients to get involved with the, their, their organization, whatever their particular, particular disease area is, a therapeutic area, and then try to get that organization active and focused on avoiding these kinds of restrictions. That's wonderful advice. So of course, those people who are affected by, by these terrible diseases are the, the best spokesmen for those diseases and the most compelling and persuasive uh, advocates for, for those diseases. So, Absolutely. Uh, so our, our democracy does work. Uh, it listens to, uh, to its constituents with um, uh, rare diseases. All right. So that's a great way to end our show. I, I think uh, there's a lot of ground to cover, a lot of information. 
where um, uh, where can our uh, listeners find your research? Uh, of course, at Pioneer, um, you're, uh, you've come out with the uh, quality and cancer treatment and ill-advised match paper. I think you have another paper as well. Uh, I have I have uh, three or four papers on the quality quality and how it impacts uh, older Americans, quality and how it impacts rare disease drug development, quality and how it impacts uh, people living with disabilities. Um, I, I've I've run through it and that's all available on the Pioneer website. Um, so. Uh, it's an active area of interest for me because I do not want the federal government in particular to start restricting drugs using the quality because we know what happened in England with cancer care. Um, sure. and, right. So they can go to pioneerinstitute.org, look up uh, research, uh, uh, query on your name, and uh, all these reports will come streaming in for them to uh, review and read it at their leisure. I'm sure this will be very, very informative and useful. Uh, we've given them a, our listeners a taste of the issue, uh, and they can go deeper if they choose. So I want to thank you very much for being on our show again. Uh, Bill, you've been a great asset. Thank you for joining me today on Hubwonk. My pleasure. Thanks, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like to help support us, there are several ways to do that. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your podcatcher. It would also help others to find us if you give us a five-star rating or a favorable review. It is always welcome for you to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas for me or comments, or suggestions about topics for future episodes, you can reach me at hudwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.